you would take your Bible, your app, or whatever it is you have, and open up to two places, Matthew chapter 1, and then we will be referring to, at the very end of the message, a pretty stunning passage, Revelation 21. So Matthew 1 and Revelation 21, let me pray, and then we are going to dive in. Father, we take a moment to still our hearts and bow our heads in your presence. We thank you for the Lord's Day, the first day of the week in which we can come together as the family of God, bought by the blood of the Son of God, to give glory to God. I pray, Father, for your help as I preach your word. Lord, I ask that you would open up our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, that you would stir our hearts, and that you would give us a fresh encounter with the living God through the Word of God by the Spirit of God. Lord, people are in here for all kinds of reasons, with all kinds of stuff going on in life. But you are an infinite God who can minister to us in so many ways. And so, Father, we sit at your feet, and we ask that you would show us the kingship of Jesus Christ. And what that means for us in everyday life, Lord. Please do way above and beyond that which we know to ask or think. And Lord, I ask that we would worship you in a way that ascribes worth to you. May we show your worth as we worship you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning, we are kicking off a two-year series through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, This series will be broken up by a bunch of different, smaller series. We got one coming up in Lamentations, uh, I think, in the summer. We're going to do the five solas in October. We're going to do Eastern Isaiah. So some smaller series, but two years we are going to spend in the book of Matthew, which I've been outlining now for about six months. This month, December, we dive in with the first section of the Gospel of Matthew, namely a section that puts on blast the king's arrival. The theme of the Gospel of Matthew is the king, but the theme of this first section for December is the king's arrival. Now, I gotta be honest with you. At first blush, this book, this section begins rather unremarkably, rather unsensationally. As Pastor Cleet read, it begins, in effect, with a list of names. Or as it's put in Matthew 1.1, a genealogy or a family tree. Are family trees exciting? Now, thank you for the one person who said yes. Thank you, thank you. I have a witness. Now, family trees tend to be interesting if they're your family But other people's family trees? Give me another cup of coffee. But I got to say, well, let let me say this. Years ago, I know family trees can be boring, unless they're your family. But years ago, my dad had a family tree done uh, of his side of the family. And then Carolyn kind of uh, did some extra work a few years ago, and we found out some fascinating facts about our family. Did you know, and I don't want to brag on this, okay, uh, and you can give me your jokes later, but this is no kidding, I am the fourth cousin of Joe Biden. 
Or no, I should say he's the fourth cousin of me. Let's get that right, okay? Now, you haven't heard me say much because it hasn't given me much privilege, but it is what it is. What I think is even more exciting, though, is when I learned about Leo Hanafi. He came over after one of the great potato, the second great potato, Irish potato famine. He came over in the 1870s. And there was Bridget Hanafi. She was 17 years old, and she came over from Ireland in the 1890s. And it was really cool. I think it was four or five winter vacations ago. Our family went to Brooklyn, but we took a day's trip out to Ellis Island, and we could look at copies of the original ship's manifest. And there we saw Leo Hanafi came over on a ship in the 1870s, third class. Bridget Hanafi came over on a ship from Ireland, third class, 1890s. All of that was really interesting to me. Why? because that's my family. And as we look at this family tree, this family tree, believe it or not, is your family tree if you are in the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're not yet in the family of God, but you're wondering about it, maybe kicking the tires of Christianity, so to speak, this this family tree is gonna tell you some crazy things about the family of God. And it's going to let you know how you can get in on the family of God. I know when you heard Pastor Cleet read the genealogy, your first thought was, is he pronouncing those names right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) But I guarantee you, a first century Christian, a first century Jewish Christian, someone maybe like you kicking the tires of this new faith, when they heard these words read, thoughts would have stormed through their head and feelings flown out of their heart because they knew these stories. And so I want to preach you this morning on the king's family tree. From this first section of the book of Matthew, the king, the king's arrival, the king's family tree. And I want us to see three astounding, three challenging truths about the king of the king's family tree. Y'all with me now? All right, truth number one. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews. If you go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find uh, a pretty biting story about a soldier. This is what happened at Jesus' trial and all those mock trials. There's a soldier who rams on the top of King Jesus' head a crown of thorns. Remember that? Slaps on his back uh, a, a garment of sorts, a royal garment puts in his hand a reed as his, like a mock scepter. And he falls down before him in mock worship. And what does he say? Hail, king of the Jews. Remember that? And then later on, I think that's in Matthew 27, Jesus is crucified. He's nailed to a cross. And inscribed on a sign above his head on that cross are these words, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Now, obviously, in both of those instances of the use of the expression, king of the Jews, the one verbal, the one inscribed, they were using that expression with less than stellar motives, right, to mock. But I tell you, never was a truer statement spoken and written than Jesus being the king of the Jews, because baby, Jesus is the king of the Jews. Point one, we're going to see in three or four ways from this opening salvo, this genealogy, this list of names, how Jesus is king of the Jews. This is seen, first of all, point one, 
under king of the Jews in the structure of this genealogy. Now, you should know that Matthew also has a genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew has a lot more names. Did you know that's a much longer genealogy? I'm, I'm sorry, Luke does. Matthew hand-selects his genealogy for brevity, for theological purposes. He shrinks it down to a list of names because he's got some points he wants us to see. But drop your eyes down to verse 17. Matthew writes, So all the generations from Abraham to David were how many? 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon? 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the, to the Christ? 14 generations. Now when it says all the generations, he's not saying all the generations that were actually existed. He's saying all the generations I've chosen to tell you about. 14, 14, 14. By the way, what word jumps out at you that's repeated not twice but thrice in verse 17? 14. Now sometimes people go all crazy with number stuff in the Bible. This isn't crazy wonky number stuff. Many commentators believe that to make his point, Matthew composed this genealogy with a Jewish practice and view called gematria. Anybody ever heard that expression, gematria? Gematria was a Jewish practice in which a word was assigned a certain numerical value based on the letter, the number assigned to that letter, and all the letters of the words added up. And here he says, 14 three times. Guess which of the names in this opening genealogy under the practice of gematria would be assigned a numeric value of 14? Yes, exactly, David. That's exactly right. And so many commentators say, even by the structure of this opening genealogy, he is trying to make the point that Jesus is part of the kingly Davidic line. And it very well may be that that might be the case. But second of all, there's this second proof that this highlights the fact Jesus is the king of the Jews, and that is the expression, the book of the genealogy of, the, of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now the word David appears in verse six. We just heard it read in Jesse, the father of David, the king. But as I just pointed out, David also occurs in verse one, the son of David. But there's a difference between verse six and verse one. Verse one. In verse six, he's saying David to refer back to an ancestor. In verse one, he's saying son of David, and he's not so much referring to the past, he's actually referring to a present title. Are y'all with me? The son of David. Because nine times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is called the son of David. We're gonna see this, it's awesome. One time Jesus is walking down the road, two guys are blind, you know what they yell out to Jesus? Have mercy on us, son of David. You go all the way down to Palm Sunday, we'll get there eventually. They say, hail, Hosanna to the son of David. And the reason they did that is they were looking for the promised Jewish king who would deliver them from Roman oppression and bring healing to their hearts and to their land. It's very sad that many of those Jews did not see that the ultimate reason Jesus came 
but so that we might have our sins forgiven. We'll see that and be reconciled back to God. But today's not so different, is it? Just like back then, there are people today who twist the promises of Scripture to say, the real reason Jesus came was for you to be healthy or wealthy or to free you from absolute all oppression. You need to open up the Scripture and see what it actually says. But I don't want to digress. I want to ask you this question. Why does the expression son of David cause them to have that response? Why son of David? Why that expression? Why does son of David make them think of a king? Why that expression? We go back to the Old Testament. You go to 2 Samuel 7. Anybody here ever read 2 Samuel 7 way back in the Old Testament? Do you remember David asked God, he says, God, I'd like to build you a temple. You remember what God says? Nope, not you. And there's reasons he has for it. He says, but your son Solomon will build that temple. Now I quote verses 14 and 15, 2 Samuel 7. God says, I will raise up your offspring after you. You're going to have some kids who have kids who have kids. And then he goes on to say, he will build a house for my name. Now listen, here it is. Then he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, here's the word, forever. Now you better believe it, baby, that when the Jews heard that read or read that themselves, the word forever would have jumped off the page. That's a son obviously beyond Solomon, right? I mean, this must be an everlasting one sitting on the throne because it's an everlasting throne. That itself tells us that this king of, Jew, of the Jews is far more than the king of the Jews. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I think just that expression, son of David applied to Jesus, points to the fact that he is the king of the Jews, the kingly Davidic king. Now, the third reason, and there's tons, I'll just give you one more right here and then we'll move on to the second point, is the word Christ, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now we hear Jesus Christ, we tend to think of like a surname, a last name, right? Dewan Artley, Arpith V. (laughs) I did know how to pronounce it one time, your wife taught me how to do that. I wrote it down phonetically. Mike Hanafi, okay? But that's not what Jesus Christ is. Christ is not a surname, it's actually a title. It means anointed one or Messiah. That's what it means, literally. And just like knights are knighted, kings are anointed. Literally, you might read it, and Jesus, a lot of versions have it this way, it's not bad, and Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one. So, all the, this is the point I'm trying to make, point one, is Jesus is the king of the Jews. Now, is there some application we can make before we hasten on to to point two? Yeah, I think there is. How many kinds of people should Christians care about? Everybody, yes, who said that? Thank you, Helen, thank you. Come on up here. Uh, No, everybody, we should love every, we should should pray for and work for the redemption of anybody who's willing to come to the blood of the cross, right? But is there a group of people that perhaps Christians should have a particular care for? What do you think? I think while we have a deep care for everyone, we should make sure that that includes the Jewish people. I think we ought to have the heart 
of Paul in Romans 10 and verse 1. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Israelites, is that they would be saved. Now, that doesn't, of course, mean that we co-sign everything the nation of Israel does, but it does mean we should care about their redemption, Jewish people. They have a veil under their hearts, over their hearts right now. Paul tells us that, right? But he also tells us in Romans, is it Romans 11? Hey, Gentiles, and we're all, unless you are of Jewish descent here, everyone's a Gentile. Don't be so boastful about this thing about being a Christian because just like God grafted you in, he's also one day gonna return and graft in many Israelites. And Romans, Revelation 1 tells us the day is coming when Jesus Christ is gonna come on the clouds of heaven, all nations will wail because of him, especially those that pierced him, and they, Jews, will flow into the kingdom as water does into a fountain. And I came across this quote today, and with this I wrap up point one, but I just think it's so relevant because let's be honest, anti-Semitism is on the rise. You know what's going on in the news, right? Here's a quote on anti-Semitism. We believe the conversion of the Jews is the key to the success of Christ's great commission, and it is incumbent upon us to pray and labor toward that end. While apart from Christ, the Jews are as all others, alienated from God, they have remained an object of God's care because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God's plan for converting them is to see Gentile nations under the blessing of Christ's lordship, thus leading them to the same blessing. Hence, the cancerous sin of anti-Semitism has no place in God's plan. If our savior came from Jewish loins, then that ought to tell us something, right? Number two, he's not only the king of the Jews, here's an historical truth with theology, but here's a robustly theological truth. Jesus Christ is the king of grace. Now what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor to ill-deserving sinners. Unmerited favor to ill-deserving sinners. Grace is what distinguishes Christianity from absolutely every other religion. Every other religion says, if you want to get right with God, baby, you better work your way there. Here's this list, you better keep it. That's one form, right? Even karma, which some religions are built on that, is based on the idea of works. You know, what you did, you got coming back to you. Even this idea of new age self-improvement, that is works. But this crazy, crazy family tree, the kind of people, let me put it this way, in Jesus' family tree, we're going to look at a few of them, remind us that if anyone would ever be rightly related to God, it would only be by grace. Because what we're going to find in this list of names, decidedly, to put it mildly and in understated fashion, would hardly be a list of super saints. Let's look at some of these super saints. Tons of names here. Time does not allow us to go through everyone. But let me, let me just start with some of the kings because kings are what are pri- primarily given here. A lot of kings in this list. Let me give you a couple of the evil kings. Take Ahaz. He is located in verse 9. Remember Ahaz? You know what this guy Ahaz did? To, imp- to impress this, the, 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 the pagan empire of the day, Assyria, to impress that king, he desecrated his own temple. That would be like a president saying, to impress, say, some foreign nation, I'm just going to desecrate the White House. 
that desecrated the temple. Then he builds up pagan worship places, altars, Baal, Ashtoreth, all throughout the countryside. And then, <laughs> to add to that, this guy literally sacrifices his kids on the altars of these pagan gods. Can you imagine that? This is Ahaz. He's in the list right here. Then he has a son named Hezekiah. Hezekiah was actually a pretty good king. We'll come back to him in just a moment. He has some reforms that he institutes across the nation of Israel. But his son is Manasseh. Manasseh is another wicked man. Manasseh reverses the reformation that his father Hezekiah brought into the land. He rebuilds all the altars to Baal and Ashtaroth. He sacrificed his son in a fire. Imagine that going on. And it is said of him that he did more evil than all the nations around them they were supposed to be a light to. <laughs> kind of like a Christian walking in absolute sin. What is that? Are they really? Well, he was evil. Evil. Not real good guys. Now, what about the good guys in this list? The guys of faith. They're very mixed in their faith. Let me give you a few. I mentioned, well, I'll come back to Hezekiah, but Jehoshaphat, he was a good king. But you know what Jehoshaphat did? He did explicitly what God said don't do. He said don't, don't make treaties, don't work with these pagan nations because they're evil and they're against me. What does he do? He makes alliances with them out of convenience. Then you go to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, again, brought some reformation to the country. But you know what else they did? Hezekiah opens up the temple and all the treasures to the powerful enemies of Israel. What does he think they're going to do? Who come back and, pl and plunder that temple. Why would he do that? And then you have Uzziah. I think he's in verse 9. Uzziah, he was a good king. But you know what he decided to do? He decided to get in a lane that wasn't his lane. Remember what he does? He's, he's no priest. You've got to be a priest to offer up sacrifice. He, he usurps the role of a priest. He goes into the temple, and like he is a priest, though he's not, in defiance of the living God, he offers sacrifice. Those, he was a good king. So do you see the kind of people that are in Christ's lineage? Overtly wicked men, and then men of faith, but who were very mixed in their walk with God. Now, we're going to turn a corner right here. This genealogy is really cool because this genealogy breaks the conventional norm of genealogies of that day and really it's still in a lot of part of the nations, a lot of part of the world today. What gender historically has been left out of genealogies in the past and still in many places in the present? Women. Women. Genealogy. Matthew is very countercultural, and he mentions five women in this genealogy. This, this, this was out of the ordinary, right? And by the way, this is another reminder you, that Christianity historically has elevated the stature of women as fellow image bearers of the living God. Now, having said that, just like Matthew hand selects the guys that he puts in his list to make a point, he hand-selects the gals, too. And all five of these women, in different ways and shades and forms, some of it warranted, some of it not warranted, are, 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 are surrounded by the shroud of sexual scandal. So let's start with Tamar, verse 3. Anybody ever heard the story of Tamar? This is like something out of General Hospital or some soap opera. This is soap opera stuff. Let me tell you the story in summary. 
Tamar was the wife of a guy named Ur, E-R, who was a son of Judah. Ur croaks. He dies. Now, according to some, 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 some Jewish custom of that time, that if a woman's husband died and they were still childless, that a brother would have to marry this woman in order to raise up offspring for the deceased brother's name. Who's the next guy in line then? A guy named Onan. Was Onan like, yes, I want to do that. I want to honor, I want to honor my, my brother and my surviving sister-in-law. Onan, Onan's like, no, I ain't doing that. But then he does, and this is what he does. And I'm so thankful for the King James right now because we have all the kids with us. So I'll just give you what the King James says and let you translate from there. It says that when Onan went in with her, he spilled his seed on the ground because he did not want to raise up offspring for his brother. Which, is, by the way, is another reason I know the Bible is true. No, no man-made document would include that. But it's in there, right? What happens to Onan? Another burial stone right next to her. There's one more brother left. You remember his name? S-H-E-L-A-H, Shayla, Shayla, I don't know how you say it, but that's the guy. He's a little bit younger, so Judah says, okay, Tamar, I'll give him to you when he gets older, but he gets older and he still doesn't give his daughter-in-law her, his youngest son. Maybe he thinks, oh, I've seen what happens every time a son gets connected to you. Boom, they're out. I'm not going to let that happen to my youngest, right? So Judah's, are y'all with me? It's a crazy story. Judah's wife dies. Tamar finds out about that. She goes, he's going to go do some sheep business. She goes to this intersection that he's going to be walking through, and she dresses herself as a prostitute. And it happens between them. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant, and you can go to Genesis 38 to read the rest of it, okay? It's a crazy story. But when it all comes out, Judah at least has the decency to say of his daughter-in-law, she's more righteous than I. But the point is, in the genealogy is Tamar, who posed and practiced that night as a prostitute, and Judah, the father-in-law who slept with her, and their offspring, Perez and Zerah. That's there. That's crazy, isn't it? Like, listen, if, um, man, if, if, if you were hanging out at a family reunion with these people, and you're around the grill, and you start to figure out their connection to the family, you'd be blown away. This is, yes, this is here. Let's take Rahab. Great story. Rahab was a Canaanite, one of the enemies of God. The enemies of God can get in on the family of God. She houses and helps two Greek, or two Greek, two Jewish reconnaissance scouts before Israelite, Israelite goes in and, and, they, and they storm Jericho and the whole nine. You know that story, right? Guess what her vocation had been? She had been a prostitute. And here she is in the family line of Jesus Christ. Then you get to Ruth, verse 5. Rahab, verse 5, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. If the Israelites weren't keen on the Canaanites, they despised their deadly enemies, the Moabites. Now, you and I know the story, right, of what happens with Ruth. But let's be honest. Do you think it would have raised a few eyebrows? This woman going to lay at the feet of a man to whom she's not married and get under the blanket? 
I mean, that wasn't an everyday cultural practice then. You, you should know that. So while it was, nothing really happened, there is the shroud of scandal right there. And then you get to this, verse 6, the wife of Uriah. Look how it puts it. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, who is the wife of Uriah, by the way? Bathsheba. Now, in recent times, it's been popular to contend, well, Bathsheba, you know, she was a victim of power structures and all this and that. But I have to tell you, when a woman's been violated in Scripture, the Bible doesn't flinch in telling you that's the case. It doesn't say that here. For instance, there's another Tamar who is assaulted, I won't use the more precise word, by Amnon, and the Scripture makes it clear that's what happened. It doesn't say that here. What we do know is that she committed what? She committed adultery. Here she is. And by the way, what's even focused on more is the adultery of David. Did you notice how the text puts it? I just read it. It doesn't say David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. It could have said that. But what does it say? David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. In other words, David fathered her when he wasn't even married to that woman, and he slept with her when that wasn't his wife and she wasn't her husband. You see the point he's making? Like he's making that point. And by the way, David then added homicide in the first degree, premeditated, to cover his adultery, and yet here they are in the line. Now one more woman I want to address before we get to the third and final point. Verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary. Now, I'll get in next week to all the details and intricacies about Jewish marriage and the two phases and betrothal and all that. Let me just say this. They had not consummated their marriage just yet, but she's got a growing baby bump. She's pregnant. The whole thing reeked a scandal, right? Why do you think Joseph, it says, being a decent man, a good man, he still loved her, he's heartbroken, but he still loves her. He doesn't want to put her to open shame. He's trying to figure out a way to spare her as much shame as possible as he puts her away. And then, of course, the angel comes and tells him, hey, this is crazy, I know, but don't fear to take her as your wife because what went down wasn't scandalous, it was actually supernatural. We're going to look at that next week. But isn't this quite a list of people right here? Quite a list of people. Again, remember being around the grill? You'd be blown away hearing their stories. The fact that they are in the line of Christ, by the way, I got to say this, doesn't mean that all these names are among the redeemed, okay? Doesn't mean that. You don't get into the family of God by physical birth. You get into the family of God by spiritual birth. You don't get in family by human bloodline, but by Jesus' blood. There are no second-generation Christians. No, you haven't always been a Christian. You've always been a sinner, but you've got to be birthed into being a Christian. But the fact that these people are in the line of Christ, and no doubt we know many of them actually in the family of God, <laughs> highlights how anyone, including the unlikeliest, can get in the family of God by grace. The thing that Jesus Christ is king over. Now, quickly look at verse 21. We'll come to this in fullness next week. Matthew 1, 21 gives us the mission of Jesus. So many people miss this. 
The angel says to Joseph, I just mentioned this verse, you can take her as your wife. That which is conceived in her is, is from the Holy Spirit. Now verse 21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because or for he will save his people from their sins. He explicitly tells us, to make, anybody here, what's the mission of Jesus? What's the mission of Jesus? That he would do what? Save his people from their sins. That, that's his mission. That's it. Other stuff he does? Yes, of course. But that's the kernel, the core, the heart of it. And the name Jesus, by the way, means Yahweh or God saves. Now that glorious truth is embedded in another title that comes right after the title Son of David. It's again in verse 1 where he is called the Son of Abraham. And again, he's not so much pointing to his ancestry as he is to a title here, because Abraham occurs in the next verse. It reminds us in the book of Genesis, God went to this man named Abraham, and he said, not once but twice, through you, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed, blessed. And the book of Galatians makes it clear that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham through whom this promise would come to fruition. Now, stay with me, okay? According to Revelation 7, verses 9 through 10, this is a massive, blood-bought family. Let me quote to you these verses. John says, after this I looked, and behold, a great or infinite multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, thundersticks, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the Abrahamic promise coming to fruition among all nations. And I say massive blood, but family, because Jesus on the cross sacrificed his body, shedding his blood in the ultimate act of grace that we might be woven into the family of God, forgiven and reconciled. And I just want to emphasize, this is not by works. A lot of religions say it. People can get up, like Catholicism teaches grace and works. Black Hebrew Israelites, another form of works. It is the law plus your ethnicity. Islam, the law plus geography. You better get to Mecca at least once, baby. And I could go on and on and on, but no, 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 no. You're saved by grace, by grace, by grace, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, period, end of story, full stop. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul says in 1 Timothy, listen, he says this, God saved us and he called us to a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the king's arrival, who did this, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So what have you done with Jesus? For by grace, you can be saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Have you ever turned to Jesus Christ? And I just want to end this second point, and the third I'm going to just run through, so hang with me. 
I just want to tell you, though, because of grace, you are not too lost for God to find you. (laughs) Because of grace, you are not too dirty for God to cleanse you. Because of grace, you are not too hurt for God to fix you. Because of grace, you are not too broken for God to heal you. Because of grace, you are not too far for God to reach you. Because of grace, you are not too guilty for God to forgive you. And because of grace, you are not too sinful for God to save you. Look at who is in his family tree. You think you've done some crazy stuff. What about these cats right here? So will you come to him? Jesus is the king of grace, and we're going to see that all through this book. Now, finally, Jesus is, and I wrap it up with this, the king of kings. Let me tell you a pet peeve of mine. I can't stand it. I can't stand it when people say, you're president. You ever heard that expression? i just going to keep it 100, okay? So when Trump was in office, people would say, well, that's your president to somebody, right? And sometimes when Biden is in office, people say, well, that's your president. On both ends, that's bunk. If you're an American citizen, he's your president, like it or not. But surely you know me well enough that I didn't come here on the first Advent Sunday to make a political statement. <laughs> I'm making an illustration of a, of a global, a cosmic truth. You can play that semantical game with, with, with an American president. But you're not going to play that game with the king of kings and lord of lords. Whether you acknowledge it right now or not, one day the scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's this marquee passage in Philippians chapter 2. It says of Jesus that though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he became obedient even unto the point of death, even the death of the cross. (laughs) That's some massive humility right there, right? And then it goes on to say, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, things in heaven, things on earth, things under earth, we say, what does that mean? everything, (laughs) will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does that mean that everyone will be saved? No, there's universalism, that's a lie. It does mean everyone will submit, it does mean that. Jesus put it this way, Matthew 26, he's before the high priest, and the high priest says, hey, tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? He says, it is like you say. And hereafter, you're gonna see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus Christ is risen, ascended, ruling, reigning, and returning. That's why the early church confessed Jesus Christ is Lord. I do want to give you the three uses of the expression king of kings all through scripture because I'm saying Jesus is king of kings. Use number one, 1 Timothy 6 verse 14. It talks about the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the blessed and only potentate, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's pretty clear, right? Second use, Revelation 17, 14, the false prophet, the beast, all of that, trying to attack God and his people. It says they will make war against the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them 
because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And perhaps the most stunning one of all, this is like breaking open the smelling salts. And if you've never trusted Christ, this is going to be strong, but this is the word of God, not the word of Mike. John writes, Revelation 21, rather, 19, I'm sorry. After this I looked, and behold, a white horse. I just picture that. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. <laughs> he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you need to submit to the king. Now, we Christians have given the king's authority to go all into all the world and make disciples because he said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's on an eternal throne. <sighs> Music team, why don't you come, okay? I, let, me, let, me just, let me just summarize. He is the king. He's the king of the Jews, the promised Davidic king. God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. That's why it's important we keep our promises. He is the king of grace, who saves any and all who will come to him, even the unlikeliest, because nobody is saved by anything but pure, unmerited, favored, and ill-deserving sinners. And he is the king of kings. He is the king of kings. No one is ever going to evade his kingship. Are we clear on that? No one. But for those that he saves, he's going to satisfy you forever. I have one more passage that I want us to look at. It's the one I had you open up to, Revelation 21. This is what the king is going to do for you. Brother, sister in Christ, is life hard for you right now? Are there struggles? Are you like, Lord, when is, when is enough enough? The life can be tough, right? Life can be difficult. Sometimes holidays put our difficulties on blast. Let's just be honest. But this is what it says in Revelation 21. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adored for her husband. And I heard a voice from the, from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now listen to this. He's going to wipe away every tear from your eye. Death will be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You can say amen at that point. <laughs> and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. Write this down. For these words are faithful and they're true. He said, It is done. Just like Jesus said, it is finished, now he says it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty. Are you thirsty? There's an invitation to you. Are you thirsty to the thirsty? I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's God's invitation to anybody here. That's his invitation. He says, come drink. Come drink without price. It costs, but not you. It costs Jesus. And he invites anyone here to put their faith in Jesus Christ from the youngest of kids to the oldest of people and everybody in between. Because he says any and all, even the unlikeliest, by grace. You say, but read on. I'm glad you said that. One more verse. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, David, the sexually immoral, David, Bathsheba, Rahab, Tamar, Judah, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So how do you reconcile that, dude? You just gave me a list of names. You said, they're with the Lord. Some of them are. You know who are? The ones who own their stuff. This man receives sinners. He receives murderers and adulterers. He receives people from all kinds of sin flavors and backgrounds who own their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, who believe that Jesus Christ took the hit they deserve on the cross so you don't have to take it everlastingly in hell. Jesus paid the price for his people. He will save his people from their sins. And he does so in such a way that it puts on display his grace, right? For the ages to come, for his glory and for our good. Well, how are you going to respond to this? I just, I just I want to press this a little bit more, and then we're going to say, how are you going to respond? David Platt talks about three responses to King Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, I think really in the Bible at large and in life at large. There are critical rejectors, there are casual observers, and there are unconditional followers. When we get, I, I can't remember, it's in Matthew 20, 24, 25, 26, we're gonna get to the critical rejectors, the religious crew. And Jesus is gonna pronounce some woes. These are verses you probably will not see on Christian bumper stickers or calendars or coffee cups and other cheesy things like that, okay? Strong stuff. Then you have the casual observers. People who follow Jesus for a season well, when the goodies stop coming or hard stuff starts coming, they step back. David Platt surmised, and I think he's probably right, that churches are full of people like that. And that's why Jesus went on to say, if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Whoever's not willing to die to himself cannot have life in me. And then finally, you have those who unconditionally follow because they are so overwhelmed by grace. There's this beautiful little story about this woman at Bethany. And she takes this alabaster box full of anointment. That's pretty expensive stuff. And she breaks it open and she anoints Jesus. Remember that story? (laughs) I don't know if it's the primary authorial intent to point to anointing of a king as much as anointing for burial there, but there may be some some meaning there as well. I do know this. Jesus Christ is the anointed one, right? And this woman anointed him. Have you ever anointed king as your life? He's the king anyway, but have you anointed him as your saving king? And if you have not, this is your opportunity to do that. Where are you? What is your response? Are you a critical rejecter 
just a casual observer or a true unconditional follower. May God give us all the grace to be that true follower. Father, I ask that you would use these words to convict those who have never turned to Jesus Christ. And I ask, Lord, that those who are 